ZipRecruiter is a proud sponsor of Without Warning Podcast. Use code word WOW and search for jobs anytime, anywhere. The Lauren Agee case was hastily closed by authorities, but many questions remain. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki as she uncovers the truth about what happened to Lauren. This is Without Warning. Warning. The following episode contains details about sexual violence and elements that are graphic in nature. I sat down the other day with retired FBI agent Bobby Chacone. Now, if you don't know who he is, you really should. I personally have admired his work for a long time. Bobby is a career federal law enforcement professional with over 27 years of experience. He has led teams around the globe from fighting the war on drugs in the mid-1980s on the streets of Brooklyn to fighting the war on terror during the mid-2000 in Baghdad and beyond. He has worked everything from complex criminal investigations to international deployments and underwater forensic training. He even helped establish and develop the FBI's underwater forensic program from its inception to its current state and developed the FBI's underwater forensic training program. I didn't speak to Bobby until the interview because I wanted a real and genuine conversation. I didn't want him to have a bias. I just wanted him to give me his thoughts based on his extensive knowledge of criminal investigation, especially those around water. Listen in as I get the incomparable Bobby Chacone to open up and give his insight to the Lauren Agee case. In order to be mindful of time, I'm going to jump in where Bobby is discussing the investigation, or lack thereof. Keep in mind, Bobby was in Los Angeles on his computer talking to me. In this kind of case, it's hard to get an idea of of what happened, or even an idea of being critical of what happened because the investigation was so bad. And so you don't know what you don't know, right? And so what we know about the investigation is that it was wholly inadequate. And so if you have a very thorough investigation that's flawed, like, say, the John Bonet Ramsey investigation or something, then you have a lot to go on, even though it's a flawed investigation. The police did a terrible job, but they did a lot, but they did a lot badly. In this case, they didn't do a lot. And what they, the very little they did, they did badly. So there's even less to kind of go on and not necessarily critique, but to investigate, because a lot of times in these kind of situations I've found since I no longer carry a gun and a badge, which gives me the authority to do certain things, that I have to rely on other people having done them. And, you know, when other people haven't done them, there's a lot less to, you know, conceptualize. There's a lot less to think about. There's a lot less to to explore because the authorities that were responsible for doing those things didn't do them. When you come up to a water scene where someone's floating, kind of what would you initially, very first thing would you do as an investigator? Well, you you do, and you can imagine you do it like, I worked many years with my, what we call my dry land counterparts, which are our crime scene people that did very similar investigations on the dry land. 
And so the first thing you do is establish a perimeter and you put the big yellow tape all around as far out as is conceivably possible. And then you look at where the person is in the water and it's a little bit, it's not cold, but you don't move, you try not to move the body a lot because some things can be gleaned from the positioning of the body and where it came to rest. And so you work your way back from the body as best you can and to see where it came from because obviously it got there. So now you want to show a path. And so, you know, that path may have been through the water or it may have been on the land closest to where the body came to rest in the water, or it may have been in the water for a while and floated to that spot. You just don't know. So you have to establish a very wide perimeter and you have to start looking at things like disturbances in the leaves or broken branches on trees or currents of the water or sticks in the water, you know, that may have caught up the body. And so um, I did a recent case where the body floated 30 miles, 77 days later, but it, it, the original narrative was it was a drowning. And to think that the body made it that far is just, it was just incomprehensible because the body would have had to navigate itself through things that just, you know, a floating um, deceased body would not have been able to do. So you start to try to envision a path from where the person was last known to be alive to where they were found dead. And then you draw a line. Now the line can be very crooked. It could be disjointed and stuff, but you just try in your mind to draw a line from the last place you knew the person was alive to where they were found dead. And then, and then you cover all the different possibilities. So in this kind of case, you would establish that wide perimeter because there's a lot of this possible different possibilities of where the path might have gone. And so you want to look at, you know, disturbances in the shoreline. Uh, are there marks on the mud or the sand that make that up? And some of that later, you'll be able to maybe match with the forensics that are gotten off the body during the examination, during the autopsy. Did it have sand in the shoes? Did it have sand built up in the ears or different body cavities? Did the clothing have sticks or, you know, twigs wrapped up in it, all of those things then start to create a picture and add to, you know, the details of how that body came to be in that place where it was found. So absent the sticks and the sand on her body or in her clothing, what would that tell you? Well, you would look at the, again, you, you know where she was last alive and you look where she came and how did she get there without getting mud on her, for example. If she did, if one theory is she rolled down a hill and into that water, then look, let's look at that hill. The body rolling that way would have gathered dirt, leaves, sticks, and then finally mud or possibly sand, depending on what the shoreline's like. If it doesn't have that, then you have to say, well, maybe that wasn't the path that that body took. And so that's what you do. You start ruling out certain paths and until one emerges that's consistent with the physical evidence that you have. Right. As an investigator, you would never bypass going to where the body was found, correct? No, no. That's probably the most important thing is to go where the body's found. And again, draw that mental picture where the body's found, where she was last seen alive. And then, and then your investigation is how did she get there? And how she got there in large part, could tell you what happened to her. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't always, but it will in large measure tell you what happened. 
she was last seen by a non-party to the campsite, two, three in the morning. And then she was found the next day at 4.30 in the afternoon. If she had drowned, would she have floated up? The gas has been released by then, in your opinion? Yeah, it, there's a lot of variables that go into play with that. A body will basically float for a little while and then sink and then float again and then actually sink again if, it, if it's in the water. Our, our bodies are not airtight. And so even when we off gas and a body bloats in water and floats, if the body is not discovered for a significant period of time, those gases will eventually leak out, even if there's not puncture wounds to the body. And the body will, left on its own, in water will ultimately sink to the bottom. But oftentimes, because we live in populated areas and we live among other people, when it floats, it floats for a period of time when it's found. It's usually found during that period of time. But left alone, it would sink again. Um, there have been murderers I've come across that, that when they're depositing bodies in water, purposely create puncture wounds so that those gases won't build up. When they off gas, they won't create that balloon effect that will cause the floating. But normally, within six to eight hours in the water, you would find off-gassing sufficient to make the body float. Certainly eight or 10 hours, you would think that that, that body would be floating. It, of course, again, it depends on air temperature and water temperature, salinity of the water, different things affect it, but those are general, uh, general rules. Remember, Lauren's body was found floating on top of the water in the second cove, about 600 feet as the crow flies from the campsite. The question becomes, could she have floated over to that second cove? And would she have been on top of the water had she drowned at that time? We got a hydrologist over there and took all the, you know, the dam readings and the water and the the wind and everything. And bottom line is he said it was the wind was the only variable during that period because the water was pretty still. And so the only way she could have been carried anywhere was the wind. That was the first indicator that, you know, if she fell off, she wasn't going to end up over in the second cove. Right. And the water current did not take her. The current actually was going opposite of the cove, just FYI. Also, I took a dummy, not exactly her weight because her weight was 118 pounds. We got a 110 pound dummy and we threw it off over and over in different areas. We never could make it to the bottom. I mean, it took four times just to get to the bottom. Right. And then we took things to float to see if it would ever go back to that cove. So those are a couple of things that we did in, in the investigation portion of it to see. And we didn't take just one area, just so you know. We took every single area that potentially she could have been. We just couldn't make her end up where she ended up. The place where she allegedly tumbled down, some areas like that go straight into the water and then some flatten out into you know, kind of a beachfront, if you will, of varying uh, sizes and stuff. Does it flatten out towards the bottom, um, like into a maybe a little bit of a shoreline? Yes, it does. For a body to roll that way, I mean, it would have to have, it, it, it's, you know, I mean, think about the body rolling. It would normally come to rest at the first flat spot it would come to, and it would take, you know, and, and, and lakes, you know, depending on the, the contour, the underwater contour, they, they're generally gradual. And if it's a gradual, drop, then, you know, the body would have to be pushed or rolled into the water 
unless you know it's it's a, it's a significant sheer drop. So if there is in fact a beachfront, there's no in my mind there's no way that the body would have rolled into the water uh, deep enough that would allow it to then float away. And the other thing, I don't know if you got to see her body, but her body was in pretty good shape for someone who supposedly fell down through all this brush and rock. And the rocks are jagged. Right. It's not smooth rock. It's jagged torrential rock. I think I only saw one picture of a floating that was like a multicolored. It was a pretty bright shirt and shorts of different colors. And they didn't seem covered in dirt or mud, and they didn't seem torn or anything like that. Of course, the biggest indicator, and you just hit on it, is like, if that's your theory, if your theory is that, yes, she drowned by falling down this hill, and then you would almost be required to look at every single rock, every single tree, every single stick along the path that you're theorizing that body took and analyze it for blood, for hair, for human tissue, and in watching the lead investigator in this case testify that that was never done, it almost didn't even seem like it ever occurred to him to do, is beyond comprehension in this case. I think what happened was he arrived, The one of the campers said she was drunk and fell off the cliff. He checked a box, she was drunk, fell off a cliff, and that was it. Okay, I, I, I don't quite understand that at this age and when you have this kind of situation. I don't, number one, understand him doing that as an investigator, even an inexperienced investigator. But, you know, police departments and sheriff's departments are built on a structure of supervision and authority. And he should have had either a training officer if he was new to this type of investigation, or he certainly should have had a sergeant or a lieutenant or a captain or a sheriff that would have reviewed his activities. This is more of a systemic failure rather than this one inexperienced individual. Where was his sergeant that reviewed his work? Where was his lieutenant that should have reviewed that work? You know, it's really up the chain all the way to the top that that responsibility lies in something like this. Wouldn't the medical examiner have caught it saying, wait a minute, there's a problem here. She's not showing signs that she fell off a cliff. You know, when I was when I was working for the 19 years of the FBI dive team, we were often called to different areas of the country, and often because the area we were going to was very rural and didn't have the a dive team and didn't have the uh, resources to dedicate to a full-time dive team. And I really saw a huge disparity in the capabilities and the uh, the uh, drive of different medical examiners, different coroners in in rural areas as opposed to you know, some of the more urban areas that I worked. And so it, it would really depend on that medical examiner, that coroner's office, how experienced they are, how busy they are, or how aggressive they are in, in looking at a case. I mean, I don't, you know, it's, again, it's another, it's a systemic failure that the medical examiner doesn't look at, you know, was their blunt force trauma sufficient to cause incapacitation that would have had her in the water long enough to drown and not kind of wake up from hitting the water, you know, that would take a significant amount of blunt force trauma. And the medical examiner, in this case, I'm not sure they found, you know, that much of a significant blunt force trauma. Again, as an investigator, that would lead me back to if she did have that extensive blood force trauma, where did it come from? And if my theory is she fell and rolled, then there's got to be a rock or a tree or something with significant amount of 
a blood or human tissue on it that caused that blunt force trauma. You just have to look for it. You you have to look for it. It's I mean, you have to. It's required to do an investigation. I asked Bobby to talk to me about some studies I had found regarding forensic and blood alcohol levels. Bobby said that was not his expertise. I am going to save part of that conversation for when I have the forensic expert on an episode. This is part of the conversation Bobby and I had regarding alcohol. I mean, people should remember that, you know, the blood alcohol level shouldn't be directly taught. Like, in other words, the more drunk she was, the more chance she rolled down that hill and, and died. That's not necessarily the case because sometimes people that are less drunk are more likely to try to you know, sometimes in some situations, you know, save themselves, but really hurt themselves. In other words, if you're so inebriated that you're like a rag doll, as you roll down that hill, your body will come to rest. But if you are not so inebriated, you might actually try to get up and stumble and thereby stumble into the water, further hurting yourself. And we, we've all heard of, you know, the, the car accidents where the guy is just so drunk that he doesn't brace himself when the impact occurs and he walks away you know, with less injuries than the person that was sober in, in, you know, because they're so loose and they're so inebriated that they don't have that muscle coordination to, to brace themselves. And, and actually they, thereby being more drunk, escape injury or escape greater injury than someone that was more sober. But so I don't know that there's a direct tie between someone saying, well, she was so drunk that she must have happened. She could have been less drunk and, and gotten hurt more. It all depends on because once you it's almost more dangerous to have a impaired ability in your motor functions than no ability in your motor functions, because if you're so drunk that your motor functions are almost completely abandoned, then you, you, you're not going to have that that stumbling ability that sometimes ends up with in this other case that I was early, earlier referring to. You know, we had it's a, it's a series of drown unresolved drownings, and some of them they were almost sober enough to to stumble around, and they stumbled right into a body of water. Whereas if they were so drunk, they wouldn't have been able to even get up. Got it. That's a good point. Actually, a very good point. The things that weren't done that you asked about, just to tell you, no scrapings under her fingernails were done. No rape kit. I mean, pretty much. It was another checkoff. And the medical examiner's office, just so you know, is in Nashville. So it, she was taken to Nashville. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, that should be a pretty big city. I have a lot of problems with that particular medical examiner's office in cases. You know, you know, you talk about checklists. I mean, I when I was in the FBI, I was doing a lot of gang cases early on in my career. We would do RICO cases. And we would a lot of murders were federal crime. Murder and aid of racketeering is a federal crime in a RICO case. So I was uh, shoulder to shoulder with my NYPD partner who was a first grade detective. And, and so I investigated some homicides as if they were homicides, even though I was with the FBI. And I did so many of them. I went to the, there's a six week NYPD homicide school. Now you don't have to go through that to become a homicide detective, but there's a checklist of things you should do in an investigation. And particularly where, even if there's a hint of an unexplained death, there are things, and it's not hard to do. It's, you know, like pilots have a checklist. It's like you go down and you do A and B and C and D. And he was obviously not provided with, with a checklist like that, where, you know, there were scrapings taken, was a rape kit done. All of those things are checklists that, you know, and there are things that during an investigation, you know, and, and the, when I moved to the forensic world, you really learn that once you forego the opportunity to do them, 
the opportunity could be lost forever. And yes, bodies can be exhumed and re-examined and stuff, but the first best evidence is gathered as early as possible in the investigation. And when you don't do that and you delay or you deny or forego that, then some evidence, you know, is possibly lost forever. And that's the real, that's the real shame. To that point, I've had a family exhume a body before and it's very, I don't generally recommend it because it's so traumatic for the families, but we have considered in this case because nothing was done. My question to you is no rape kit was done. What are the chances three years later there's any evidence if we exhumed the body? You know, again, not my area of expertise, although, you know, there's different types of evidence that's that's revealed in a rape kit. There's not just bodily fluids. There's not just semen. There's, there's bruising. There's breaking. There's other things that can be found other than, you know, something that would appear in a, say, in a, in a chemical screening. So I, I don't know. I, in a case like this, there might be benefit because nothing was done. It's not like you're trying to exhume a body and get an alternative opinion. Really, I don't think enough was done at all. And so there might be more benefit in a case like this where, you know, so little was done initially. So, you know, I would never put it out of the realm of possibility that an examination of the body, even after this period of time, could yield some, some evidence. One of the reasons they said they did not do a rape kit was because she had a tampon in, mm -hmm. supposed to be on her period. The fact that there was a tampon in is kind of a mystery to us. Did the medical examiner find the tampon in the body? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They discarded it, though. They got rid of it. Okay. Yeah, that's another thing that they shouldn't have done. And, and again, if you're going to do a complete and thorough examination, there's a lot that can be said about that. It's another indication that there was something not right in the situation as being explained, right? I mean, if you know, there may be a reason she had a tampon in when it wasn't her period, but you have to investigate to find that reason out. You have to things. You can't just say, oh, she had a tampon and she was on her period. We're not going to do it. First of all, you can you can still do a rape kit if somebody's on their period because there are other there's other evidence there. A rape kit is part of a rape exam, and the exam can yield other other evidence that can be there. It doesn't matter. Um, you, it, still, it still should have been done. That was my biggest thing for the family, whether or not we should consider exhuming the body because it is so traumatic. Right. And they should know that. They should know that. And they should know all of the, you know, all of the different things that go into that and then make their informed decision. I mean, I, I would, I would be less inclined to advocate that if we had a thorough examination of the body at the time and say, look, all you're going to do is try to get your expert to, you know, contradict the expert that, you know, but since not enough, in my opinion, was done at the time through the medical examination at, the, at, at death, um, I think that in this particular case, in this type of case where so little was done initially, it might be worthwhile. The DA has said that there was a thorough investigation and there's no need to reopen the case. What's the chances for a family to get somebody like the FBI involved in a case like this? One thing, it was on federal land. Does that help at all? Oh, yeah. If it was on federal land, then, yeah, if it was on federal land, then we would be brought in. And we, a lot of times, we're the primary agency on federal land. Sometimes, it depends on what federal land, if it's BLM land, if it's Indian land, if it's uh, national park land. 
National Park has its own investigators and stuff. But certainly, if it's federal land, that brings us in much, much easier. Yes, it was on federal land. But I don't know exactly what type of federal land I'll look into. That. If you were looking at this case to, to investigate it, what would you do at this point? I'm putting it out in the public. I'm pushing it. I'm working with CrimeCon. I'm doing all those things to put pressure on it. Am I missing anything? No, it's not a sense of missing it. It's it's like, you know, it, it's we oftentimes have the discussion of like why a particular case gets legs in the news, right? And and stuff. And you just have to keep plugging away at it until, you know, it gets like that. Now we have these high profile cases in Colorado of the guy that killed his his wife and two daughters. And now we have this next one in Colorado where, you know, I guess, I guess the woman is still missing from Thanksgiving. Um, so you, you just never know why a certain case catches fire like that. But that's the kind of publicity that you really want from the victim's family standpoint of it's because it keeps people looking, it keeps people talking. In a case like this where, you know, you have a couple of kids who are suspected of maybe, you know, taking part in something that was nefarious, you know, the more people are talking about it, the more someone's going to say something or the more someone's going to know something. And someone's going to pick up a phone and call. If the case dies and everybody forgets about it and no one's talking about it anymore, there's much less a chance of that happening. And young people talk. They talk. They tweet. They text. And they brag. And they want to tell secrets. and want to share secrets and things like that. And in a case like this, we have four young people, even though some of them have moved away, if it can be kept an item or topic of conversation, there's a much higher likelihood that someone's going to say something to someone along the way that's going to be useful and, and maybe break the case. I went into a long dissertation with Bobby on what I had done in the investigation. I will spare airtime for that. However, I wanted to get his opinion on the investigation and what someone should have done from law enforcement perspective. They didn't go through her day, like when she could have died, how long she could have been there. The only way they knew the time of death is the last time someone saw her, and that was it. Right. They didn't talk to anybody who was around her to get kind of her her last movements. Sure. And then the kids, of course, lawyered up immediately. But one of the suspects, I'm getting to this one, Nobody mentioned him. Nobody talked about him. And when I did 2020, we had witnesses come forward saying, well, wait a minute, you've missed someone. Why is everybody covering for him? Or why is he the one that nobody's mentioning or talking about, even though he was there? Well, there's several reasons you can think of. Again, going back to the fact that these are young people. Young people are afraid of bullies or thugs or whatever. If this kid had a criminal record, if he was known to be a tough guy. If, you know, people are just going to be scared to talk about him, scared to put him in there. One of the things they missed and one of the one of the things we used to do in a, an investigation like this, what, one of the things you want to do is, you know, from the time of death, you know, in the time the last person seen alive, that's the first part. But you also want to attempt to recreate the last 24 to 48 hours of that person's life. And, and you can't do it, you know, the last weeks, because what you want to do is get into very much detail. I mean, extreme, even to what they ate, to stuff that may seem irrelevant. You want to build a picture of the last 24 to 48 hours of that person's life. Oftentimes, just going through that process and that practice of building that life and putting those details together 
you know, what they wore, you know, two days before, what they changed into every little detail of that person's life. If you can rebuild the last 24 to 48 hours of that person's life, oftentimes you come across something you didn't know existed or you weren't even looking for, but it revealed itself through this putting of these puzzle pieces together, rebuilding that 24 to 48 hours of that person's life. And it'll tell you who they may have come in contact with, who they may have had disagreements with or words with or or anything. And, and so we found that useful in, in crimes and particularly in murders where the person was a stranger to the victim and they just had this one very innocuous contact, but it was negative in a way and obviously deemed much more negative to the killer. And then the person winds up dead and, and you can't find anything in the person's background, no enemies, no financial trouble and all that. And But they had this one weird little incident or interaction with someone and that led to the killer. So you really want to be able to try at least to build the last 24 to 48 hours. In this case, what's made easier is that she was there at this party, this week long, weekend long party, whatever. There's a lot of people that can be talked to. And then literally you get aboard and you start rebuilding the last 24 to 48 hours of her life of everything she did, almost a minute by minute accounting. And in there somewhere, you might find what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Now, she did have uh, what we have identified by a dentist as a bite mark on her breast. Did the medical examiner find that? I mean, was it? No, it's in pictures, but they never identified it. Along with, they, they also left out the hemorrhaging in her throat. Yeah, that's not in the medical examiner's report. It's not. I have a picture of it, but the medical examiner didn't have the bite mark or the hemorrhaging. See, that's that tells me that a complete examination with the medical examiner was, wasn't done because obviously, you know, if she was romantically involved with someone that night, you'd obviously want to see if you could match up the bite mark to that person's teeth. You'd have a, a you know, a forensic odontologist do a comparison. If you could, you'd get a subpoena for dental impressions from from the people she might have been involved with. These are all just standard investigative steps that, that you would take if your victim has something like that on them. Then you go and you get the subpoenas and you get the, the dental evidence. In this case, it will be dental impressions. I've taken them. There's kits now. You can I, you can just drive up to someone's house and, and spend 20 minutes with them and get those dental impressions. And, they, and that's an examination that you would, want, you would have wanted done. Of course, the civil lawsuit was dropped because the podcast is bringing in more tips than going through the legal system. Right. They took the fifth and we weren't able to get any dental records. We do have the last 48 hours of her life. Now, I won't say minute by minute. Strategy starts to develop depending on how aggressive you want to be with your investigations. If you if you think you know who would talk or who you would want to talk, not necessarily the main suspect, then your investigation focuses on them. And then I, I hate to say it, but that I have gone, at, you know, like when we used to go after international narcotics operations, we didn't go after the, the top guy, right, at the beginning. That's who our ultimate goal was. But we'd, we'd pinch guys lower on in the organization and try to flip them. And we wasn't always behavior in the organization that we would target them for. If they were doing something else wrong, but we knew we could get them on that other thing and then put pressure on them to cooperate on the bigger investigation, then that's something we would consider doing. So you'd have to have an investigative strategy like that. If you have a main suspect and you think, you know, they won't talk, obviously, because it's a murder charge. If you have somebody that's connected or that has information that would, if they're up to something else, you go after them on the something else, putting pressure on them to make a deal. We'll make a deal on this if you give us some information on that, you know, and that's an investigative strategy that you have to map out when you kind of have, um, like you said, you put together that last 48 hours and you kind of, your suspect's in there, you know it. Whoever did this is is in those last 48 hours, they're in there. 
and who else is in there and who else might have interacted with them or might know something. Let's go after them, put pressure on them to roll on the person we're looking at for the murder. And that would be, you know, an investigative strategy that you'd put together with authorities like that. It's much difficult, much more difficult to do if you don't have that law enforcement authority willing to do that. First of all, I'd be disappointed myself that I didn't get it out of those kids to begin with. But certainly I would know that they're hiding something from and I would set out to find out what it is they're hiding. And that's that's part of that rebuilding of her last, you know, 24 to 48 hours. You would know that she was sitting on his lap. That's that's that minute by minute. Okay, who was this guy whose lap she was sitting on? And that's as an investigator, if you're doing that and you're doing your job and you're rebuilding that, then that would be someone you would track down and find out. You do it through your own investigative you know, abilities, not through you know, somebody else. Bobby and I were discussing the picture of Lauren and Chris Stout in the hammock together. I then asked Bobby about the repercussions for such a bad investigation. Unfortunately, there's no board of certification for investigators at a level where, like if there was a doctor that did such a shoddy procedure examination, somebody, and they wound up dying because the doctor didn't do his due diligence in his profession, you know, he'd be reviewed by a peer review board and and the licensing commission and stuff. You know, that's what you need. You need a peer review body that would come in and of of experienced investigators and go, "Uh uh-uh, this just isn't right. And because it was so mishandled that it needs to be redone or or somebody needs to redo it or something. But, you know, on the law enforcement side, because we have such a variation in abilities and resources in different jurisdictions, you know, uh, doing a peer review type of thing is really difficult, you know, because some jurisdictions just don't have the manpower or resources and, and things like that. But, you know, I can tell you, as you know, just a, it was uncomfortable for me to watch those video depositions of that lead detective where he was asked over and over again, did you do this? Not only did you do this, but the follow-up question of why you didn't do it. And his answer was just like, because I, I didn't. And that's, I mean, it's actually more uncomfortable than the first question. Like, did you do this? No, that's bad. And then even worse is why you didn't do it and not having an answer on why you, I mean, that's, that's even more uncomfortable to watch him and make those answers. And then you just, I mean, it's, it's mind boggling on, on, in this case that, that he has no answer on why. And I'm not saying an experienced, you know, New York city homicide detective. I'm just saying this is basic investigation. You know, I am, I understand you're an experience, but where was his sergeant? Where was his Lieutenant? Where was his, his chain of command that should have been, you know, training him on the job. If he's an experience to, to, to teach him and say, Hey, you know, if you didn't do this, get it done. Where's this checklist of stuff that, to get done on basic investigations. This is, it's not good. The most disturbing part was the tape of the, the, I guess it was the chief who basically said, look, uh, he blamed the TV station. He blamed the local TV station. And he said, "When if you come after me, I'm going to go back at you. Instead of saying, look, if you, you know, come up with something that shows that my department didn't do a thorough job, I'm going to do everything I can to look into it to make sure either we did it a job and show you why, or if we didn't, I'm going to correct those mistakes. That's what a leader would do. A leader wouldn't turn around and say, if you come after me or my people, I'm going to go back at you and your people. I mean, that's not the way a leader would act. A leader would say, yeah, I will show you where I think we did the adequate job. Or if you're showing me stuff that is inadequate, you know, then I'm going to make the corrections to that. And the corrections to that would be, we're going to reopen the case. We're going to interview all these people. We're going to go back and we're going to start from scratch and just kind of treat it as if it just happened and reinvestigate it. 
So who are the leaders in DeKalb County? It could be brought to the FBI. I don't know. It depends on what kind of federal land, because sometimes, on, like if it's on National Park Service land, they have jurisdiction. They could ask for our help. We have it on Indian reservations and military reservations, although on military property, if it's NCIS, sometimes gets involved. So it all depends. There's a lot of layers. There's BLM land. There's, there's all kinds of Interior Department land. And so if you, know, if you can bring it to the FBI, I mean, there are... I mean, there's an office, obviously, in Nashville, and there's smaller offices around And you go into and you talk to a duty agent, you know, and their their job is to take people who walk in and, and talk to them that day and say, this is what I've got. This is what we've got. Would the FBI consider looking into this? I mean, that's that's what you would do. That's how you would do it. Um, they would or wouldn't. It depends on, you know, on the individual office. And, and, and in addition, like I said earlier, the prosecutor's office on, you know, because the first thing they do is you know, they're not going to waste their time if they're not going to be prosecuted. So, you know, it also might be a way of, of doing it is approach the U.S. Attorney's Office first and say, look, we've got this case. It's a murder on federal land. And will you prosecute it? Then any federal agency, you know, could get involved once the prosecutor said, once the U.S. Attorney's Office said, yeah, this murder, if it happened here, you know, and it was a murder, if it was a murder, if it's found to be a murder, we'll prosecute it. Then you'll have probably multiple federal agencies interested in doing the investigation. I asked Bobby if he thought going to a congressman would be helpful in getting the case reopened. Here's what he said. When a congressman or, you know, even a senator calls, I mean, that that phone call is taken very seriously. Once a year, I go to the Hill to talk to senators and congressmen about bills. This year, it'll be about the Cold Case Accountability Act of 2020. Cheryl McCollum of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute has put this bill together, but we need your help. Please go to change.org and sign the petition. Words cannot express how much I appreciate Bobby for taking time out of his busy schedule to join me on my podcast as we continue to fight for justice for Lauren. A simple thank you or thank you seems inadequate. But I'm going to say thank you, Bobby. You are simply the best. Lauren's family gives their full permission for any and all details to be shared and hope that the truth will come out. If you know anything at all, call 1-888-599-0008 or email tips at sheilawysaki.com.